So today's Intern Whisper Tip of the Week is we are continuing our focus on inclusion in the workplace. Your organization should have policies to honor various religions and cultural practices. Without an inclusive culture, you will not enjoy high productivity and engagement from employees. This can be done by focusing on different celebrations and holidays. For example, if you give people Christmas Day off, you should make an effort to include other religious holidays. You can also do other little things around the office, like designating a separate fridge for kosher food. You may also provide a room where people can go to pray or meditate. Muslims pray in their workday and will appreciate having a place to go that is quiet. Although these are small gestures, they will speak volumes in your workplace. Then you can motivate employees and show how committed you are towards diversity, equity, and inclusion. Welcome, Amy. I am so happy to have you as a guest on the Interim Whisper Show. Uh, let me make sure our listeners know who you are. It's Dr. Amy Narishkin, who is also the CEO. I'm going to guess CEO. I didn't check this one. Yes, yes. Okay, of Empowering Partners. I am so thrilled to have you as a guest on the show. Likewise, this is so much fun. I love having conversations and seeing how they unfold. And you're exciting to talk with, so thank you. Thank oh you. my goodness. I know we talked about this on the air or before we got on the air. So you and I are in each other's fan clubs. So. Yes, 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 absolutely. Right. <laughs> so our show is always about education, innovation, and the future of industries and jobs. So if you would please introduce yourself to our listeners using five words that describe you and why those five words. Oh my goodness. I'm not writing another dissertation, right? It, it's no, just you don't have to do that. It's just five words. So I'm going to say that you're curious. I think that would be one of your words for sure. And you're very positive. I would pick that as a word about you. Interesting choice of words. I, I would suggest uh, maybe the positivity comes across because presence is really important to me mm. that, that I'm practicing presence that I promote that I, that I practice what I promote, I should say. Yes. And presence or another word is contemplation and seeing what unfolds somewhere between you and me. What I love about cultural intelligence, and, and that's what I teach. I teach cultural intelligence and that's simply that which enables you to be able to talk with just about anyone. Oh, goodness. Yeah. And you said teach. And so I'm going to guess that might be one of your words that describes you as somebody yes. that teaches, educates others. Yes, I, I teach. And as I'm teaching, I practice presence. And what an, an element that's particularly important for cultural intelligence is curiosity. Mm -hmm. But one of the things that we have to be really careful about when we identify with the dominant culture, like I do, being a white cisgendered white woman, mm -hmm. is how you might identify me, is I'll have to be careful not to come in hot with my questions. Because so often, if you think historically 400 years of genocidal history in our country, um, when people of color are asked questions by people of the dominant culture, people who are white, however you wanna describe it, uh, children are taken from them or people are deported. Uh, just pretty, pretty scary stuff happens. So one of the things I have to be careful about is asking, can I ask you a question? So my curiosity has to be tempered with this courage to step into 
presence with someone and see where the conversation will go, <laughs> how it unfolds. Because mm-hmm. if they don't want to engage with me, uh, then they, they need to have that permission. That's true. A lot of times now I'm a very direct communicator. Mm-hmm. And when I do that, I don't always think about, oh, I need to ask if this is okay. It's usually I'll say, well, I'm really sorry. I, I do want to be able to say what I'm going to have to say. And I don't mean this to sound like a microaggression or anything that's offensive. Right. Yeah. And yeah. My hope is that they know me and they're going to allow me to go ahead and answer, ask the question without it being mm-hmm. uh, judged. And, and when you don't know someone is when you have to tread particularly lightly. Because if somebody knows your heart, Isabella, you know, if somebody knows your heart, then you can ask for a do-over and, and they're oh, going to yeah. give you grace. It's, it's coming in hot when somebody doesn't know you. So I'm married to a foreign-born national, right? He came mm-hmm. to the United States when he was at university and he looks like your average Joe white guy and he developed an American accent. Mm. Well, because of his background, he grew up in Mexico City and Rio de Janeiro and Rotterdam and in Bangkok, right? Mm-hmm. He's lived in five countries. He speaks four languages. So, you know, the guy's going to make a beeline for any other foreign born national that he comes across and he wants to know about them, right? And being part of the dominant culture, it didn't occur to me that when he comes in hot with his curiosity and his very American accent, that people don't know where he's coming from. Yes. And, and he'd realize that he realized that some people kind of recoil from him and, you know, he knows what I do. So he said, what could I do to let people know that my heart's in the right place? And I said, why don't you tell them? Then yeah. he goes, what do you mean? And I said, well, right now you're saying, where are you from? That's coming in hot. If you provide a little context about you, you know, I wasn't raised in the U.S. I was raised abroad. And I'm really interested in talking and connecting with people who are, who are different like me. Would you mind telling me where you're from? And, Mm -hmm. and there's the, the softness because you've made yourself a little bit vulnerable by sharing your context before you ask them to share their context. (laughs) Does that make sense? It absolutely does. It absolutely does. Because I think we always have to establish trust at the beginning and show that this is about a relationship. Yes, you, you got it. it it's, that's how you, or I'm sorry, I don't have the final word on this. This is a way to establish trust with somebody who comes from a different perspective. And whether that's perspective, a difference of perspective because of nationality or skin color or religion or orientation, ability. Yes. People who are neuroatypical, you come in hot and they might need time to think or intro, highly introverted. I'm introverted. Um, hard to believe though. Well, I would describe myself as either a high functioning introvert or a gregarious introvert. I love to engage with people, but an introversion simply means time to think things through. Mm -hmm. And so when you're in a meeting at work and you've got women or neuroatypical people or introverted people Mm -hmm. who typically need more time to think things through versus an extroverted who will just throw it out there and see how it lands which is what we typically honor in a um, dominant American culture. Uh, there's an opportunity to slow that meeting down and go, hey, what hasn't been said yet? Or I'm gonna throw a question out there and just take a moment to write down your answer. Kind of like you gave me show notes mm-hmm. before we started. Here's an opportunity. And you were being very thoughtful of me, giving me an opportunity to kind of think ahead so that the, 
introverted part of me can go, okay. Paired, right? Yeah. Just kind of get grounded. And if, and just as a kind of a piece of advice for people who are highly introverted and you don't want to call them out in a meeting. Mm -mm. You don't want to say, Hey, Isabella, what, what have you got to say? I haven't heard from you. Mm -mm. No, don't, don't do that. Just if, is there anything that hasn't been said yet? I'd love to hear from people who haven't had a chance to share and be quiet and hold the space and see if somebody speaks up. And if they're still not speaking up, let that meeting close, just circle back afterwards. You wanna shoot me an email or catch me in the hall with your thoughts because Isabella, your thoughts are really important to me. Right. You now they feel seen on their terms, mm -hmm. not on your terms. Mm -hmm. And what I love about what you just shared also is the fact that you, it's important for people in the workplace to recognize that when somebody's processing information, they may not have that idea then, but you said, okay, when you're thinking about it later, come and, come and talk with me, because that is something that happens. They'll sit there and go, hmm, let me think about that. Yeah. Yeah. And then it might be a day, it could be a week but you'll still hear something more than likely because you've opened that opportunity. It's not closed. You're, you're speaking like an educator. You recognize that learning and contributing take place in time mm -hmm. and on the spot. That's mm -hmm. beautiful. Another group that I actually haven't mentioned, and you know, people ask me, Amy, why do you talk about differences? Shouldn't, shouldn't we just kind of downplay differences? And oh, I'm no. Like, no, no, actually we need to see our differences because it's our differences that enable us or not to join a conversation. So if you talking, so a person from the dominant culture is the person who comes from this place of power is talking with a person who's not from a place of power, like a child or a student or a direct report, a person of color, a woman, when you're, when a man talking to a woman, for example. So when you're, when you're talking with someone who doesn't hold your same power, you want to slow it down and give, give them an opportunity to share over time. Mm -hmm. And to your point, particularly historically marginalized groups, when people have been shut down and shut down and shut down. And then, for example, a line worker has experienced just silencing for so many years. And then the manager comes in hot and says, you know, I really want your opinion. I really, really, really do. Do you think she's gonna just all of a sudden open her mouth when in the past that hasn't worked so well? Mm -hmm. She's been ostracized or fired. So no, 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 I'm fine. I'm not gonna share anything. So it may be that the person who's coming from this place of power has to ask three, four, five, ten 10 times before that person, really? Do you really want what I think? Will feel comfortable. So it's just when you're coming from the dominant culture and you think, well, I'm just asking, well, mm -hmm. they'll just answer. Mm -mm. If you're not recognizing, if, if we are not recognizing that difference has created a very different experience for them, then that can make us kind of insensitive and we don't want to come across that way. Yes, I agree. <laughs> I've, I've noticed that, well, I'm an extroverted processor, and I'm really glad that you mentioned it as a processor. It doesn't mean that I'm super outgoing and friendly. I, I hope I am. However, how I process is talking something out loud. And many times introverted processors are going, I see this look of confusion on their face and they're yes. going, she ever getting to the point? What the heck? <laughs> yes. 
And so that's one of the biggest things I like to teach other employers is that, or people, how we process information. It's important to remember as a teacher, I had to get my thoughts very focused. Mm -hmm. Okay. What is it that I need to say here? Stay focused. You're actually talking about being present with you. Mm, Yes. And, And what is it that needs to be said here or maybe what needs to be felt here for a moment so I can get my thoughts clearer. Mm -hmm. That will help us be more present with the other person. Sorry, I interrupted you. Excuse me. Oh, you're totally good. Because in this conversation, I'm sitting here thinking, well, we had two other words and I'm going, but what would those other two words be? And what I had written down is you had said presence, contemplation, and we agreed on teacher, but you keep pointing to two other words that I think are or C words, curious, and also con, uh, communication. So I don't know what your other two words are that you would have picked to describe you, but there's so many good words that came out of our conversation. So, so good. Courage is, it takes courage to hear someone out, mm-hmm. to hold the space somewhere between Isabella and Amy. There's this precious thing coming into being. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not easy to, in, in our society, we, we tend toward kind of dualistic thinking, good or bad, in or out, right or wrong, black and white. Uh, whereas, and, and that can make us uncomfortable with nuance mm-hmm. and presence and mystery. And every time I'm talking with someone new, I don't exactly know where the conversation's gonna go, just like you and I don't know. And mm-hmm. You and I are expressing courage right now because we're allowing this conversation to evolve. Mm -hmm. And it'll ultimately be a blessing for both of us if we do a great job of practicing presence with one another Mm -hmm. and feeling with one another. And it takes courage, right? Mm -hmm. I I always have a little bit of butterflies and Mm -hmm. who making them fly straight? Dang, that's hard, right? Yes. And yeah. I think the, the other C word that keeps coming up for me is when I'm practicing presence, I bump into compassion mm. for, for others and for myself. So in this space between you and me, if you think about, so Father Richard Rory is a Franciscan monk that I follow his writings, and he talks about respect, meaning respect or relook. Mm-hmm or look again. Mm-hmm. So respect comes from looking again, taking a deeper look. And it's in that softer gaze that we find compassion for another. We may not be able to wrap our minds around what somebody's been through, mm-hmm. but we can certainly understand it must've been hard for them. Yes. Right. When, when somebody says, I remember when an African-American man at the end of a workshop that I had done on cultural and introducing cultural intelligence, he said to me, he challenged me. He said, uh, Dr. Amy, I don't understand how you can know my experience. How, how can you teach this? And it was a predominantly white group that I was teaching to few people of color, few women, but mostly white men. And when he challenged me, I could see that there's just, <gasps> Oh my gosh, in the room. And 
I was on a first name basis because in predominantly white culture, we typically are using people's first names. Mm -hmm. But my experience with an African-American culture is you use titles. And I remember saying to him, Mr. Smith, let's call him Mr. Smith. I was very intentional about using his title. And mm -hmm. I said, Mr. Smith, there is no way that I can understand your lived experience in a society where people of color are oppressed every day and every moment of their lives. There's no way. But what I can do, sir, is teach people the skills to learn how to hear you, to at least appreciate what your experience is like, mm -hmm. even if they can't imagine or have never had such a lived experience. I think on some level, at some point, they've been bullied. We all have been bullied at one point mm -hmm. or another. And when they imagine what that's like on a regular basis being pushed down, mm, their hearts break. And that's my opportunity to teach the skills. And he said, all right, Dr. Amy. And he gave me permission to go ahead. Oh, wow. That's yeah. a big deal. Yeah. For a black guy to give a white woman permission to speak. Mm -hmm. I, I was given the green light. So I went ahead and taught my workshop. That is real. Yeah. <laughs> buy-in. Big buy-in. Yes. Yes. Yeah, so, so there's a little bit of the courage that showed up, but there was mostly, no, there's not, but there's no, but there, there was courage that there was this contemplative. Yeah. It's, it's, and this, I, what I call presence is cause I like to keep it to my C, five C's, mm -hmm. um, this contemplative moment where I was being with him in his pain. And how is it, how is it that this woman could possibly imagine? And I can't, and I just own it. <laughs> yes. And I think that type of honesty is what is so, appealing because people usually are defensive and they'll point to somebody else oh well it's this it's this it's this rather than take ownership and when you take ownership of something that's when real change can happen because you're part of the solution now well and, and it's just what you're saying is i can't change other people but i can certainly change my step in the dance how i say and what i say makes all the difference in the world. But I think a lot of us kind of walk around thinking they need to change and then I'll feel better. Oh yeah, no, that isn't how it works. No. <laughs> yeah. You know, back in the day when I was training teachers how to teach and you know, I had I don't know, 30 or 35, 19, 20 year olds learning how to manage a classroom, right? You remember in pre-service teacher classroom, mm -hmm. you, you have to learn how to manage behavior. And I would start the very first class, the very first day, the very first sentence with, if you think you're going to change anybody, if you think you're going to manage a class by being here, you're not. Mm -mm. And they'd be like, what? And I'm like, the only thing you can change is you mm -hmm. as a teacher. And that's hard. Oh my God. It's, it's what manages a group, whether it's children or adults or teenagers is not anything. I, I can't manipulate people, but what I can do is think about what I'm saying and how I'm saying it. Mm -hmm. and people will step in or disengage mm -hmm. based on what I say. So I hope to invite people in rather than call people out. I learned that also as a public classroom teacher. I sat there and I had basically 30 to 40 students, you know, in every class. And I would have six, six classes. And at the end of the day, you're looking at like 200, 250 yeah. students. And, yeah. I, and I went, okay. I cannot move any 
any students out of my classes. That's not an option. That's just not, I ended up with maybe like one person that go, oh, this is the one I like, maybe 10, right? What we have to realize is we need to focus on what's great about people. And that's what I would do. I'd sit here and go, well, I have to get along with these people and 16 year olds or 12 year olds, no matter what age they were. And that includes my three year olds that I teach in Sunday school. I learned the best lessons from my three year olds. Yeah, you do. <laughs> right. Because I have no control over them. They just say whatever, do whatever. Anyway, I've learned that just embrace it. Just love on them. Let them, just like you've said, be seen. Let people be seen, be heard. Mm-hmm. You know, let them know that you care about them. And then they'll they'll follow you anywhere for quite a while, you know? Or at least they'll listen. Yeah. <laughs> I wanted to. Yes, agree. Yeah, you've agree. nailed it. You've nailed it. I just I just finished a doing an executive coaching session uh, before this call. And he asked me something similar, you know, how, how do I influence people? And I said, well, one of kind of the tenets that I live by is if you want to feel seen or heard by another person, make sure you see and hear them first. You're the, and I said, you're the one developing your cultural intelligence. So to create that win-win that you desire, Mm -hmm. you hear them out first. Mm -hmm. Oh, okay. He said, well, I want to hear about their experience. I'm like, no, no. I want you first to affirm their feelings. Mm-hmm. And he's like, but I'm really curious. And I'm like, mm, I know, but it takes courage to slow down, get mm-hmm. contemplative and hear them out. Mm-hmm. And I said, you don't actually have to believe me. Go home and try on your wife. So oh, yeah, like, <laughs> good example. Just, just hear her out and see how powerful that is. And he goes, okay, I'll do that. And what was, oh, you don't know the results. He yet. doesn't come back yet. We don't do another session until next week. Oh, I can't wait to hear it. I'm going to expect a text from you. It worked. It yeah. worked. Of course. Well, you and I know that worked. <laughs> Every woman wants to. The one thing that you don't say to a woman is, I want you to calm down. The oh one my thing God. you do say oh to a woman God. is, let me just listen. <laughs> that doesn't, does that work with a woman? Does that work with a child? Does that work with a grand? That doesn't work in anybody. No. I don't think anybody in the history of you need to calm down has ever calmed down with those words. No. No, if you really want somebody to calm down, whether they're three, 12 or 16 or or 96, (laughs) right, is look them in the eye and say, what's going on? And I'm going to add to that. I'm going to say human touch is everything because it is incredibly hard to um, be angry or to shout at somebody when you're holding their hands. If you hold somebody's hands, I've done that with my Mm. Sunday school three-year-olds or just anybody go, come here, I'm going to give you a hug. And then you just breathe. You just let all of that emotion and you'll feel that person melt into your arms because they'll be angry with you. But that's so sweet. And, and we have to be careful. I'm, I'm just thinking about in a workplace, workplace environment, of course, we're not going to hug somebody, but we could ask somebody to do something physical like could we go and sit in that corner at that table there and just be together? And, and it would be, it would have a similar effect of a human touch because you're, you're touching them with your, your presence, with your, with yeah. your attention. And that, that can have an impact. You're, in both cases, Isabella, you're, if you're embracing somebody with a physical hug or you're embracing somebody mentally, in both cases, you're just practicing presence. You're yes. being with them. You're slowing it all down. Yes. You're a natural. So are you. You and I should be on the same company team. (laughs) 
We will. It's already been decided. I'm not sure how, when, but it's going to happen. We'll figure it out. Okay, so let's take a little step back into your history here. Like, where did you go to college? How did you go from college to this place where you are now and that story in between? Anything and everything you want to share? Oh, my goodness. I, relative to this work is I attended the University of Missouri, St. Louis. Mm -hmm. I, I lived there. Yeah, I did live there. In that, in that part of the world. So that's north part of St. Louis County, very mm -hmm. near Ferguson. Mm -hmm. where Michael Brown was killed. But before Michael Brown's death, I finished the doctoral program at UMSL. My other degrees are from the East Coast. I, I'm like my husband, I'm a corporate brat, but I've been mostly moved within the United States and a little bit internationally, whereas he grew up only internationally. Mm. UMSL is where I met one of my colleagues, Pastor Sims, and at the time I didn't know he was a pastor. He was just my buddy in our classes, and we gave each other a hard time. And and it was with Michael Brown's murder that I was. It struck me all of the kind of white silence, and that was manifested in the gag order over all the school districts in the St. Louis area when the protesting was going on in Ferguson. Mm. And I called my friend. Dr. Sims, who's now Dr. Sims, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and I said, what's going on? I'm not from St. Louis. Why isn't anybody talking about this? Mm -hmm. And he's a black man. He said to me, and this is when I learned that he's a pastor. When I'm speaking from the heart of a pastor, people will allow me to speak, but otherwise my white friends don't want me to talk about it. And I'm like, oh my goodness. Wow. So it's not just me that's bumping into this. And he said, no. And I said, okay, so within your community, I'm assuming you have an African-American church. And he said, I do. And uh, yeah, we talk about it, but we're so accustomed to tragedy. And I just like, oh, stop. You mean, we've got people who have this deafening silence and people who are talking about it and they can't communicate at all about what's going on. And it was that initial conversation, we wondered together what could help people jumpstart conversations. And we actually wrote an op-ed piece for the St. Louis Post-Dispatch about how to jumpstart conversations. And then we prayed over it. The two of us just kind of let it go. Mm -hmm. He and I kept our conversations going. And now our relationship's gone much deeper because now we're talking about race for the first time, just out there. Yeah. And I had never talked about race before. I grew up as a rich white kid, right? I, it was all new for me. So he's pushing on me. And he's got an all black church, by the way, it's my church now, but so it's not all black now because we're there, but um, he was getting pushed on too. We were mutually learning and growing together. And it turned out that that op-ed piece got circulated around St. Louis area. And I got an email back a couple of months later saying, Amy, it's starting in our school district because of the op-ed op piece that you and Dr. Sims put out there and, and prayed over, um, it, it helped begin lift the gag order in one school district. I don't know its ultimate impact, but it helps somebody get some wheels under them and get going. And mm -hmm. in the conversations with Pastor Sim, we opened them up to people in his community and, and also whites. Um, and that's when forever the teacher and me began to notice that there was some skills missing. Mm -hmm. We just didn't have the skill set. So the average white person knows one black person and the average black person knows eight white people. 
Mm. And that's partly because of demographics. We're only about 13%, 13% black in the United States. We're about 18% here in St. Louis. So we just don't know. But, but the other piece of that is the brain doesn't naturally head toward people that are different. Why, why, yeah. why stress ourselves out, right? And so we, we don't know black people. We, don't, we learn white history in schools and um, we don't have to think about race. So we don't have any vocabulary for it. And that really puts us behind the eight ball. And when we don't know how to talk and I began just to keep bumping into and noticing, oh, it's a skill set. We're not dumb. We're not ignorant. We're just unaware. Mm-hmm. And I was like, I can teach that. And then I was like, nope, I'm not going to teach that. And huh, that's too scary. And, and pastor called me back and he goes, get back over here. And I'm like, no, I'm just going to hide. And he gave me permission to hide for several months. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, it's a lot easier just to be white and just ignore it. Right. So honestly, there was like four months that I just hid because it was too hard. <laughs> oh my goodness. Well, <laughs> I've had a lot of exchange students live with me mm-hmm. and I went, I can't, it's not possible for me to go to all these places for a number of reasons, but I love to live vicariously through them. And when they come and they live with me, and I've had some from Macedonia, from Saudi, from uh, France, from Russia, from uh, China, and from Colombia, I've learned about their their culture, their customs, and I've been able to ask questions that we wonder about in America. We go, well, we hear this. Is this true? And, you know, they'll flat out tell you if it's true or not, because, you know, that's their country. By getting to know them on that level, and some of them have been with me only for two weeks, and some of them have been with me for a year. In Macedonia, that was another country too, Macedonia. Good for you for naming them all. Oh, yeah. Well, I love that. Thank you. The, the, the thing about getting to know different people, now I do have biases. When I pick people to work I hope with. so. You wouldn't be human if you didn't have biases. Right? Yeah, we want to reduce it. But the ones that I like to pick as my biases to work with are first veterans, they know how to lead. They know how to follow. They come in all different races and genders and, and ethnicities, to be honest, veterans. The second one, and it's not in this order. The second one is um, neurodiverse because I love individuals with disabilities, but you know it can be anything. Right now, I have a deaf student that's working with me, and she is in video production. I go, how do you do that? How do you, how do you edit these things? And so I, we're doing these series of shows called um i am the face of diversity that's our hashtag our pr campaign and we're also doing these behind the hr curtain conversations so i'll invite you back for one of those conversations awesome and the behind the hr curtain are subject matter experts just raising awareness about things like race ethnicity disabilities abilities whatever the topic is and those are uncut they're raw pretty much they'll be on our youtube playlist But the other ones are, I am the face of diversity is to raise awareness about what makes us each unique, but yet we're the same. Absolutely, both both and. Veterans, and then there's individuals with disabilities. And then the third one I pick is always international because I like to learn about other people's cultures very, very much. So I think when I'm looking at who I, I like to work with, I pick people that are different from me. Because you know, that takes courage, Isabella. That takes courage. Oh, thank you. It does. It does. But I also want them to know me as much as I want to know them. 
So everybody and different generations. I think if you pick the generation, there are generational differences that can really throw us. Yeah. And because of the technology that we're born into and that we know that it impacts how we communicate with each other, but it also creates a stereotype in our mind. And then if we work across those generations, then we can begin to build better bridges. Obviously. Yeah, you're, you're talking what I would term mutual mentoring. Yes. Right? I call it peer and reverse mentoring, but Perfect. You know, it's all mentoring. You're yeah. right. Absolutely. Yeah. So with, with that, this, this ability to reach across these differences and build the bridges that you're talking about is what is what I was learning to do when I was going through my four months of, I don't know what reflection. you want to call it. We'll call it reflection. <laughs> I, it was reflection. It was denial. It was grief. It was fear. Mm-hmm. It was ignorance. All, all, all of that blend was in there. And I was both a cognitive of, you know, and metacognitive mm-hmm. while I was going through it, I was journaling and, and it was a period that I needed to go through. Because as a person of the dominant culture, being white in the United States is a lot like being right-handed in a right-handed world. Mm-hmm. It, it works for you. And I have four adult children, two of which the, the second set are all the same husband, ironically, but all, all four of them, I, you know, I, I thought it would be the same, but then of course, God gives me two left-handed children. And it wasn't until I had two left-handed children that I realized that the desk wasn't supportive and the spiral gets in the way, the ink gets smeared, the scissors don't work, and I need a whole new can opener. Mm -hmm. It never occurred to me what it was like until I had that so-called difference in my house. And I realized, oh, this is what it's like for me as a white person. Things have kind of been working for me all this time. And when they're working for you, you just don't see it. Mm -hmm. Not my fault. And I, along comes this horrific event in Ferguson around Michael Brown's death and these conversations with Pastor Sims that I'm being awakened. And it was four months of awakening and, uh, and also hurt for what we have done historically. I, I was doing reading during that time and I had to go through uh, part of the awakening process is deep grieving for what whites, uh, not me, per se, but certainly my white history Mm -hmm. has done historically to people, both indigenous and, and Africans. Um, So I had to grieve that. And and I had to go through that process before I could find my voice and then begin to develop this curriculum that, that allows people to get from awkward to awesome. Mm. But you got to go through awkward to get to awesome. And, and I tell when people approach me and ask, can you help me diversify my organization and help and, and in turn help me reach a broader market? And I'm like, absolutely, if you want to do this inside work, because mm-hmm. we're going to walk through the awkward together. I'll come alongside and I'll show you that the, there's a path and you'll be safe. But, but that doesn't mean it won't be uncomfortable. And if you're willing to do this inside work with me, then people of color and people who have different abilities will be just drawn to you. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That is beautiful. All right. So I'm going to jump ahead to another question. You mentioned that there are four skills of cultural intelligence. I know we've been talking about them, but what are these four skills and how can practicing these skills impact others and 
to feel valued and also seen because you've been giving some really great examples. I just think that we can probably even build on it. Yes. So four skills and pretty essential skills. And you'll recognize these, nothing that you don't know. The first skill is get to know yourself. Mm -hmm. You can't really, really care about anybody else. You don't have the bandwidth to care about somebody else if you don't care for you. Mm -hmm. You can certainly fake it. Absolutely. We can feign interest. We can say, oh, tell me about you. Tell me about your feelings. But honestly, if you haven't sat in presence with you and gotten to know you and value you, I don't understand how you can really value. And, and it wasn't until I really valued that four months of pain mm-hmm. and, and was like, all right, Lord, universe, whatever you want to call something that's bigger than me. Mm-hmm. What, what is it that you're teaching me here? Because I could demonize this, this grief and this conviction and this pain, um, or I can let it teach me. Mm-hmm. And in that process, I was getting to know me. And when I was reading a lot about what we have done historically within African-American, two African-American communities as white people, and I was grieving. So for example, we were... Uh, In the 1800s and the 19th century, cotton was the number one commodity on the world market. And in 1805, we were harvesting, I think it's like 2.5 million bales of cotton a year. Hmm. By the time the war broke out in 1865, it was like 3.5 billion bales. And we did that off the backs of Africans Mm -hmm. and I remember just grieving what we'd done to people to drive them to production drive 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 as if they were animals and calling a woman who's a generation ahead of me who who is my mentor a white woman who started her work in the original civil rights movement Michael Brown's death being another civil rights movement and George Floyd igniting another one, but the original civil rights movement. And she said, Amy, you can only read so much at a time, slow it down, Mm. learn the history, appreciate the history, but only take in so much that it'll allow you to keep moving forward because you could paralyze yourself. And that, that was one of my lessons. I had to get to know me that I got a big heart and I'm a little tender. Um, So I, I can only take in so much. I had to get to know me. I had to develop a contemplative practice to learn how to practice presence with me. That was happening in those four months. The third skill is grow your standing of uh, understanding of others. Mm-hmm. And I was doing that as I was reading. I was learning about me. I was learning about them. So now when I talk to African-Americans and they're, you know, they're informing me about their history, I can go, yeah, I get it. Mm-hmm. I, I, I know, you know, you read, um, for example, Michelle Alexander's book. I'm looking at my at my my bookshelf. The New Jim Crow is a great place. It's not quite so devastating, but it the New Jim Crow helps you understand how we've created this pipeline to prison in the United States and why we have the highest incarceration rate in the world, more so than South Africa during apartheid and modern day Russia. Mm-hmm. We have extraordinary incarceration and women women are growing. And mm-hmm. people of color make up almost half of who's in jail. And yet people of color are not half of our population yet. So it's, you can see that it's not fair. Mm-hmm. Um, 
So, and, and then that last skill is to learn how to build bridges across those differences, but you've got to know yourself, be able to practice presence, grow your understanding. And that will then give you the opportunity to say, hey, what was the impact of my words? Which is a way to build a bridge. Or like my husband said, said, I wasn't raised in this country and I'd love to know about your experience. Would you be willing to share? That's bridge building. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So those are the four skills. <laughs> that is super good. I'm going to take a moment just to acknowledge our sponsor, Cat5 Studios. The Intern Whisperer is brought to you by Cat5 Studios, who help you create games and videos for your training and marketing needs that are out of this world. Visit Cat5 Studios for more information to learn how Cat5 Studios can help your business. Thank you, Cat5 Studios. We're back to our show with Amy, Dr. Amy. I like that. It's so friendly sounding. Dr. Amy. <laughs> yeah. I'm going to, I'm going to use that one. Typically I would say, please don't call me Miss Isabella because with, <laughs> with uh, grownups, because I feel like I'm still teaching Sunday school <laughs> yeah, or you know, preschoolers. So, but the doctor side of it, I think that's uh, I mean, you work hard for that. So it's, is it more legit? You know, honestly, when I'm in white spaces, I'm Amy, when I'm in spaces where of, with people of color, I tend to be Dr. Narishkin or Dr. Amy. And I tried to fight that and I realized, oh, that's me being all dominant culture. And so I've learned to just allow the title to be because when somebody gets a title, like for example, within my African-American church, damn, it's an achievement and yeah. meant to be honored. And I don't want to downplay the work I've done or nor do I want to minimize the work other people have done. So I'm like, yeah, however you want to address me. But, you know, here's I'm going to give you a pushback thought, too, oh, please. in that place of servant leadership, it's always, well, OK they're calling me something that based on how they've been raised and what they believe is showing respect, but it's also, well, what is it that you want me to call you? If I'm asking you what you want me to call you, then I'm making sure that I'm putting you as I'm not going to call you Dr. Amy, not if you don't want that, I'm going to call you whatever you ask me to call you. Mm -hmm. And then that actually reframes everything inside of the head of the person that I'm speaking with. And they go, you know what? I never thought of it that way. So there's two ways to look at that. And so I don't, but you're I don't see that as pushback. I see that as thoughtfulness. Yeah. It's, 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 you're not pushing back on me at all. I know enough about African-American culture, like mm-hmm. not much at all, that titles are really important. So yeah. in that context, I will start with title and then I will do what you're saying. Kind of that second step. Do you mind if I call you Mr. Smith? Mm-hmm. And no, 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 that's fine. Or, uh, I actually had to ask my pastor, do you mind if I call you Julius when it's the two of us? Because mm-hmm. in that space, he's Pastor Sims. Yes. And and I asked permission. So mm-hmm. yeah, we're we're both on target. <laughs> yep, absolutely. Absolutely. I'm going to go back to a different question. On your LinkedIn page, it says that you have superpowers. I love superhero movies. I love it to pieces. So I want to know more about this. Tell us what is your superpower and how did you get it? And how do you show superpowers to others? Oh my goodness, a fully loaded question. Yes, uh, diversifying is. organizations, it, it starts within with this contemplative practice. So a superpower in a movie could come with a lot of noise and a lot of physical strength and a lot of confidence <laughs> or at least feigning confidence. Yes. <laughs> in my case, superpower means slowing down to go fast. 
So I was doing that executive coaching session this morning and this gentleman was saying to me, I don't understand. We have communities to serve with this hospital. How do we have an opportunity to do this training? Like, I don't know, do you? Do you mm -hmm. have the time to slow down so we can speed up? And yeah. he goes, what are you talking about? And I said, because you got to start with you. It goes back to these four skills. Get to know yourself. Love mm -hmm. you. Because once you love you, you're going to be able to hear them a whole lot better because your needs are met. Mm -hmm. But as long as your needs are met, there's this noise going on and just clamoring for attention. But if you want to be truly selfless and truly about the other person, you got to get this, these voices, these needs of yours met. You need to see you and love you. Mm -hmm. And that gives you the bandwidth then to really serve the community. When I was working with a, a Jewish organization, philanthropic organization, uh, best of intentions, well-to-do, uh, highly educated group of people, right, who are minority in disguise, right, they look like white people, but hearts break, because if you think about it, bombs go off in synagogues, and anti-Semitism is on the rise in this country and around the world, and yet they were the most giving group of people I've, I've ever met, and, and yet they were realizing as we were doing the, the workshops and in, in training them to hear people out and practice presence, they realized that one of their programs was taking the children from their parents. And they were like, oh my God, we've got to throw it all out. That's not loving. And I said, hold up. I bet there's part of that program that is loving. Mm -hmm. And there's part of the program that could be conceived as harsh. Mm -hmm. So maybe we need to slow it down mm -hmm. and find out and in your conversations with those mamas, find out what they need mm -hmm. and adjust your practice and your policy, your organizational policy when you've really found out. So I think the superpower still goes back to this contemplative presence and you bump into compassion. Yeah, I, I definitely, I love everything that you're sharing here because I'm I'm seeing just so, so much, this is so needed in the workplace because when I look at like the other questions that we have and we will never reach all of these questions. So we will have to have another time. Okay. Okay. I sit here and I go, you know, what we're teaching when I first, I'm gonna take another step back. When I first started teaching writing in middle and high school students, we used to be teaching values. So it sounds like what we're teaching is really a values and helping people to see what values are because in our fast paced technology world, everything is moving so fast. And that reminder to be slow down is key to everything because people don't think about planning. They talk faster. There's so much based on technology busy, that yeah. accelerates everything. Busy, yeah. And we have to be really careful because with cultural intelligence, we look at our own contexts. So when you are developing that, that skill of getting to know yourself, you're mm -hmm. getting to know your own context. It's not a world of technology, it's actually Western culture. Mm -hmm. And Western culture that is uh, task-based as mm -hmm. opposed to the countries that are coming online now Brick. So Brazil, Russia, India, China, South Africa, Saudi Arabia, they're all relationship-based countries. They mm -hmm. industrialized later. So to this day, 
they are relationship oriented. And if we Americans want to do business with them, we're actually gonna have to use our cultural intelligence and slow down and move in contemplatively and be willing to have three cups of tea. They want to have a relationship. They wanna to get to know you. And it's in that getting to know you that, some, that trust is built on a little bit of vulnerability because you shared something about you. And, and that's why we need cultural intelligence, not stereotypes that like lock people in, but an awareness of what's around us. So the, the guy I was working with this morning, he's like forces around us. And I'm like, you mean your culture? Mm -hmm. This urgency of being task oriented. It's when you don't know your culture that you're in the back seat and it's driving you, driving you, driving you. But when you do know, mm -hmm. hey, wait, this is a time that I can put aside my to-do list. And now I'm going to be with this person. I'm going to be all in with Isabella right now. Mm -hmm. That's that space that opens up between us. Mm -hmm. And if I didn't know about my culture, I would just driven right past this. I would have been driven. Mm -hmm. But I love how some cultural, just a little bit of cultural awareness puts you in the driver's seat and gives you some power. <laughs> oh, mm -hmm. there's superpower. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Superpower. <laughs> when you know what's driving, um, it's a superpower. Mm -hmm. Very much. And everybody has those superpowers. We don't see them as superpowers. Not because, yet. Yeah, not yet. <laughs> But the, you said a couple of things there that I really like to build on top of too, is one of the things from, you know, being a white woman also, I have learned that I, well, I have a, a part of my family is Filipino, very family oriented, very relational. I have a lot of friends that are from Hispanic culture, again, extremely relational. Mm -hmm. And I gravitate towards those cultures that are that way because I feel that I'm 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 definitely included you're so at home for, yes exactly at home that's key so what you're describing is the ability to go from being in COVID where a lot of things are about remote work having to work from home there's these feelings of isolation that are in there. You only know your immediate people that are around you that are in maybe in the house. Right. You create this space to have relationships that are built on first trust and key values that are making everyone feel seen. And the people that I work with come from all different walks of life. So I always, again, going back to that, I appreciate it because when I go outside at night and I look at the star just to get perspective, yeah. it is not all about me. What, what is the problem that I have? And I look at the, the vastness of, mm. of the sky and the stars and everything that's out there. I sit here and I go, okay, I can breathe again. Nice. And by working with other people does make me feel that I'm closer to places that I've never been. Oh my goodness. And it's interesting, this podcast, this show that you're running is relational. Yeah. Your, your, your approach to this work is how you've been enculturated. And it, it's not hard for you. It, this would be very hard for some people who are very task oriented, but for you, it just, it just flows and, you're, and you allow the mystery of how the conversation is going to unfold. You're extraordinary in your ability to do this, to engage and practice this contemplative posture with people. And I love that you recognize where it's coming from. You're, you're Filipino and, and 
you said Hispanic background? Actually, no, I have neither of those. My cousins, my uncle, white male, married a Filipino woman. So my cousins are Filipino, but I love the family. I just sit here and I go, oh my God, I spent Christmas out there and I went, it's three days of Christmas celebration and nobody sleeps. It is amazing. Oh, awesome. Yeah. And how, and what's extraordinary is that when we have the courage as Americans to step into spaces of relationship, like here on your podcast or going to the Philippines or talking with your African-American neighbor or colleague and stepping into this conversation that you feel connection like you've never felt before. Mm-hmm. Your, a to-do list can, can kind of get in the way of connecting with people. It, it, yes, mm-hmm. it absolutely. There's, there's, a, there's a huge benefit of slowing down. I've actually had, you know, and I was working with an engineering company and one of the engineers said to me, I don't understand that we're all about productivity. Why do we have to talk about seeing people and being connected? And I said, I don't know. I'm just kind of thinking about some research I read recently. And I said, can I share it with you? And he said, all right. Um, I always ask before I push. I don't, I don't push without permission. And he said, I was allowed to. And I said, did you know that a doctor cuts his or her litigation in half? by spending on average an extra three minutes with their patients. And he was like, oh, and I'm like, you got three minutes to spend with somebody? And he goes, all right. I said, can you imagine as an engineer, the innovation that could happen and the collaboration that's possible for an extra three minutes? I don't know, what's the cost? He's like, all right, Amy, I get it. (laughs) He walked away. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. (laughs) You're not talking, I mean, sometimes it's three days at Christmas, but it's not always that much time. Oh no, no, it's not. And, you know, I was even having a conversation with one of my interns yesterday and it was 45 minutes of, you know, playing with Canva to produce a, and I was teaching him a lot about design. Now I sat there and I went, I spend a lot of time with him because he's very relational. I, Mm -hmm. I get that. He's also a veteran. So there's, you know, a number of reasons, multidimensional reasons why I spend more time with him. One of the things I said to him, I said, you want to go into consulting and you want to also be able to go into, you you think you want to be an HR consultant or a business consultant. And I said, so let me give you something else to think about. How much time have we spent on this and where could my time have been spent differently instead of spending 45 minutes on this one thing? Because Mm -hmm. we have these other things that we were supposed to accomplish. And I saw his face fall and I went, okay, you know, I may have hurt his little heart, but he wants to be a consultant. And part of being a consultant is you really have to listen a lot. (laughs) Yeah, you do. And you better get it right when you come in. And because otherwise you're not going to be their consultant much longer if you can't nail it. So I said, it's really very important that you pay attention to details so that you're seeing it without me having to show it to you. And this is my second semester with you. So I'm thinking that you would see these things because we're in month four. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And I'm going to let him ruminate on that for a little bit and think about it because he's he's also very um, self-reflective. And I believe he'll get there because yeah. it was a hard thing to say, but he also knows me and there's an element of trust and he'll let me say something like that to mm-hmm. him. And I'm, if, I know you I'm, hadn't, if you hadn't done Isabella, if you hadn't done, I mean, you do you and, and it builds trust because you share yourself 
Yeah. I don't think he would have opened up to you. That's just precious that he opened up to you. Well, we'll, we'll see how it goes. We'll see. Okay. So we have to text each other next week and see how it turns out. I will, because I have a meeting on, on Friday. And so when I have that meeting, I'm going to say, so I know I said something that I believe was, it appeared that it may have been hurtful for you, but I'm telling you, if you're trying to get to this place, you're going to hear things that are really hard to hear. And people are going to say, is this the best use of our time? So, Yeah. Yeah. It was a teaching moment, but I have to go back and I want to see if he connects the dots on his own rather than me connecting the dots. That critical thinking and problem solving is obviously clearly needed in the workplace, even yeah. in ourself, because you're talking about being self-reflective and my goodness, you have to know yourself. And, and what you're doing for him is modeling. You're, you're modeling the kind of leadership that you want him to you're practicing what you're promoting is, is basically. Yeah, I, I do always that. hope that. Yeah, thank you. I appreciate those words of affirmation for sure. Well, it's so hard, hard to believe we are at the end of our show. Oh, so there's two questions with you. Thank you. Well, it's because it's so good. It's such a good conversation with you. My goodness, it's been great. I'm serious. I'm going to go and move you over onto the the behind the HR curtain conversation. Okay. So what is the best mentoring advice that you want to share with our listeners? I think fall in love with you. Mm, fall in love with yourself. There's, there's a lot of talk around, make it about the other person. And I want you ultimately to be able to make it about the other person. Mm. It's so often, if, if we've got a lot of clamoring going on in our head, something needs attention. And attend tend to that little one. Yeah. And you take care of you. It's you're in the airplane, right? Do you put the mask on the other person or yourself? There are times what you're saying is you got to put that oxygen mask on yourself. Yeah. And so really, really see you and your uniqueness. So mm -hmm. we don't want to minimize people's differences mm -hmm. because organizations are successful when you've got greater innovation and greater innovation comes from individual unique ideas and people will not feel comfortable sharing their uniqueness unless it's embraced by the leadership and it can't be embraced by the leadership if the leadership isn't embracing themselves and their own uniqueness it kind of one thing leads to another it absolutely does i totally agree how can our listeners contact you please share your website any social channels linkedin whatever that you want them to connect with you on as well as if you're so bold and brave to put your email address out there it's absolutely. whatever you're comfortable comfortable with how about all of it so my favorite platform is linkedin and i love to connect with people there i post several times a week that which kind of expands thinking about different people and different ways of being in the world. And it's just, it's fun to see people's reactions and get comments. And I do a little teaching and a lot of learning on LinkedIn. So please connect with me there. Of course, if you've got a question or a scenario, or you know somebody that needs to be kind of get some coaching, <laughs> mm -hmm. um, and you can email me, that's amy at empoweringpartners.com. And that's all my, also my website empoweringpartners.com. Very nice. 
Amy, thank you so much for sharing all of this great information. I'll be in touch after for sure, but I'm going to take a moment to share. Thank you to our sponsor, Cat5 Studios. Thank you to our production team, our video interns, Chase McDowell, David Ullman, Efren Cuevas, Jason Sindoni, and Keisha Perez. Our music in our show was by Sophie Lloyd, sound effects by Eric Peterson, Matt Miller, Dave Francis, and Miguel. And visit employers, the number four change at www www.e4c.tech to learn how you can create real diversity and inclusion culture while scaling your people for the future. Thank you so much, Amy. Thank you, Isabella.